Welcome to Simplify. I'm Caitlin Schiller. I'm Ben Schumann Solar. Hello. What's We're, up? Hi. We're back for a traditional Caitlin and Ben Simplify episode extravaganza. Hey, today we have an interesting episode with a person who is an expert in sober dating. This is a surprising topic. Yeah. How did you I come across so this topic? Sober dating. Um, well, I came across it in the wild in my own adventures in dating as a, you know, a woman in her upper thirties and just encountering a lot of it. A lot of people who were like, Oh, I, I don't drink. And me being like, Oh, uh, we can go for a walk. That's fine. Actually, I'd rather do that anyway. But I don't remember seeing a lot of that in my late twenties and very early thirties. So it was kind of on my mind and then I saw this book circulating around and I was like, ooh, we got to talk to Tani Lara. She is known as the sober sexpert. She's a writer and a speaker and um, talks about alcohol-free sex and dating. Her writing's been featured in Playboy and Men's Health, Huffington Post, and she's got two essay collections. But what we're focusing on today is the unimprovably titled (laughs) Dry Humping, A Guide to Dating, Relating, and Hooking Up Without the Booze. There's a couple of things, and we can talk about it more in the bookend, that... I'm excited to talk about today. One is, this is a very simplified topic, actually, because when we started this podcast, like what we're looking for is ideas that are simple and that we can simplify for people mm-hmm. that can make a difference in their lives, that yeah. make a big difference. And I actually think there's a lot in the interview that's very simple mm. and that might challenge people to think about some stuff in their lives. Like we've talked about how you think about so many things in your work, in your life, in your relationships that this is like something we haven't really talked about, even though we have talked about nutrition. Yeah. We have talked about drugs. That's true. So to me, it's it's really interesting. And I want to, I have a couple of things I want to talk more about after yeah. the interview to that, including quick tease. Yeah. I saw some medieval castles this summer. <laughs> Same one. And I'm going to tie this to, I'm going to tie my, a tour of a medieval castle to this interview. I cannot wait. Yeah. All right. So then let's hear the interview and then we'll get to medieval castles. <laughs> it's weird, but bear with me. Okay. All right. Let's do it. Hi, Tani. Thanks so much for joining me today. Hello. Thank you for having me. So I like to ask Simplify guests, uh, because you are, are a person of many, many different um, talents and you publish and speak in many different places. I would just love to have you introduce yourself the way that you like to be introduced. I love that. I'm Tawny. The internet likes to call me the sober sexpert. Great title. Um, I'm a, a writer, podcaster, and all of the work that I do in sobriety and sexuality education is really creating the resources that I needed when I was younger. So uh, I'm excited to chat about all that today. So yeah, and you wrote, today we're going to talk about your new book, which is fabulously titled. It is called Dry Humping, A Guide to Dating, Relating, and Hooking Up Without Booze. So what got you here? So your own personal journey informs a lot of this book, but tell me about what you were thinking and what you wanted to give people when you started writing Dry Humping. So I I started this book as a memoir, as a personal essayist, and and I'm a journalist. Um, I tried to write this as a memoir, as my sober sex and dating journey. Um, I'm a big, big, voracious reader of the quitlit canon, as they say, you know, literature about quitting drinking. And in early sobriety, I just devoured memoir after memoir to be seen, you know. So, of course, I wanted to write my own memoir. And then I spent years writing it that way. I took writing workshops and realized that it just 
something about it just didn't feel right. There was a lot of my story that I wanted to keep to myself. And it's difficult to do that when you're writing a memoir about sex and sobriety. (laughs) (laughs) So, (laughs) um, you know, people in my workshops would ask really great questions. And I found myself feeling defensive. Like, I didn't say this out loud, but internally I was like, oh, my God, that's so personal. Why would they ask me that? Mm. And I'm like, well, I'm in a memoir writing workshop. They should be asking me those questions. (laughs) Yeah. But, you know, that visceral reaction I had to those questions showed me that maybe memoir is not the vehicle for this. So I let it sit for a little bit. And ultimately, I started researching sex and dating, like the role that alcohol plays in sex, dating and relationships from a journalistic lens, because I was still obsessed with the topic of sober sex and dating. And that's really like when the story all came together, you know, reading studies, interviewing doctors and neurologists and other sober people, sober, curious people, uh, people that still drink alcohol, talking about their relationship with alcohol and how that connects to their sexuality and gender identity. And I really put my journalist hat on and dove deep into research. And I guess you could say then dry humping was born. Uh, the potential for <laughs> wordplay with this title is is rife. Very good. <laughs> Um, I got interested in in your book because back on the dating market at 38 now, I've been noticing that so many people don't drink alcohol. And when you're younger, I think when you're in your early 20s or mid 20s and you're out there in the dating world, or at least when when I was out there in the dating world in my in my mid 20s, which was, you know, a good 12 years ago, everybody drank. That was just what you did. You met for a drink. But now people are less likely to do that. And, you know, especially in a city like Berlin, there are people out there with all kinds of backgrounds. Maybe they have, I don't know, maybe they have a history of alcohol use disorder. Maybe they just don't want to anymore. And I have an increasing number of friends who are also experiencing this. And um, they just feel so bad the next day that they no longer want to drink. Um, I have a friend who refers to it as a shame over. Mm. And... um, I would love to hear you talk a little bit about the relationship between desire and alcohol. The more that I learned about my own relationship with alcohol and sex and dating, and then, of course, the more I interviewed other people, the more I learned about myself. I'm sure you can relate to that. Mm -hmm. The more I learned that the topic that kept recurring was liquid courage, Mm -hmm. liquid courage, liquid Mm -hmm. courage. and, And that opened it up. Because, you know, when I thought this book was going to be for people that are in long term recovery that are like, we're just, yeah, we've committed to a life without alcohol, you know, one day at a time. Um, but I couldn't get over the fact that everyone seems to be struggling or at least relating to the concept of liquid courage mm-hmm. on dates in the bedroom when you have to have an uncomfortable conversation with your spouse. And that's really when, like I said, when dry humping came about is like, wow, okay, liquid courage is a universal yearning that we've all just been socialized to lean on. Mm -hmm. You know, if there's someone cute at the bar, what do you do? You take you take a shot and you go hit on them. Right. (laughs) You know, Um, if you're nervous for a first date, what do you do? You have a glass of wine. You're nervous to be naked in front of someone for the first time. You, you, you split a bottle of wine. So it's like these things are just inextricably linked in our society all over the world. And that is just fascinating to me. And 
I think it's the almost more fascinating to me how many drinkers mm. are interested in this conversation. I Like I said, I thought it was just going to be me and sober people. But it seems it really is something that everyone's dealing with. Yeah, absolutely. I was just having a conversation with a friend the other day about how she realized that once she she stopped drinking for a couple of weeks, just to see how it was that when she would walk into a party or would walk into a new social situation, she would look for someone she knew and literally hold on to them because she was used to having the prop of the alcohol and of that. So the physical prop and also the liquid courage of what the alcohol would do for her. Yeah. I mean, that that is that is so normal. And because there really is something, there is something comforting about having a drink in your hand, even if it's just water or seltzer or something. And I don't know, maybe it looks like if you're, if you're not drinking, maybe you're, you might get in your head about, oh, well, I'm the only one who's not drinking anything. They're going to know that I'm sober. They're going to know that I'm struggling with my relationship with alcohol, which is never the case. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like we obsess over ourselves significantly more than people are paying attention to us. But like you're saying that your friend wanted to feel comfortable. And that's why so many people rely on alcohol even in a, in a social setting like that, just having a drink can be comforting. Yeah. So then when you started on your your sober dating, your sober love life, your sober romantic journey, what do you see as some of the benefits and what did you experience as some of the benefits of, of trying to, to just do this stuff without alcohol? You know, I love this question because for me, it reminds me how honesty is so connected to my recovery because... It takes a great deal of honesty with yourself to admit that you might have a drinking problem or that you might need to drink less. That take that is very humbling. You once you're honest with yourself about that, for me at least, that trickled into every aspect of my life. Ooh. You know, I was like working towards a promotion at a job that I really didn't want and I got honest with myself about it and ended up actually demoting myself oh, wow. <laughs> and focusing more on my writing. And sexually, how I was showing up in bed while drunk was largely performative. And once I quit drinking and began forming authentic, real connections with people, those real honest connections showed up in the bedroom, too. And I didn't have to perform. Once you stand up for yourself, it has profound impacts on the rest of your life. And, you know, like I, I say in my book, I'm here to help you, you know, get rid of liquid courage and cultivate intrinsic courage. Mm. Each chapter is all about getting to know yourself on a more intimate level, how to bring people into that relationship with yourself that you've been nurturing. It, it really it all starts with being real with yourself. And, you know, one of the biggest questions that I get is like, how can I be more confident on a date or in the bedroom without alcohol? And that question is is so raw and so vulnerable and i i get it because i was there too and and i remind people great deal of confidence to say you know what i'm not going to drink or i'm going to drink less i'm going to change my relationship with alcohol mm. in a booze soaked world you know yeah. that takes an insane amount of confidence and real courage so if if you can just bring that into your dating life, into your work life, into your romantic life, your family dynamics, you really can see a, a shift. Yeah. A weird connection just popped up in my mind. And it's that 
when a person who's been on birth control for a long time gets off of birth control, they're suddenly aware that they are attracted to different partners or not attracted to the partners they're actually with or they've been with for a while. Mm. And they have a clearer vision of what their body is telling them. And I'm wondering, did you experience anything like that when you stopped drinking? Did your did your preferences change? Were you suddenly able to see what you wanted in a, in a person more clearly? I love this connection so much. I've never thought about that before. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, my standards for who I would date or hook up with or have relationships with were pretty low. I usually met people in bars. So I was like, as long as you like rock and roll and whiskey, then you're my soulmate, <laughs> you know? So I had a lot of soulmates. But once I quit drinking and I spent a lot of time on myself, and that means figuring out why I drank, going to therapy, unpacking all of the stuff that I hid from using drugs and alcohol, Mm. you know, that really helped me obviously figure out who I am. It also gave me more confidence to actually like pursue quality people. Mm. And what I mean by that is people that treated me right, people that respected me, people that are also taking care of themselves, prioritizing their own mental health and physical health. I didn't look for that when I was drinking and dating. That was not a priority to me. I just really wanted external validation. That was that was really it. So anyone who could give me that was, like I said, my soulmate and we could drink whiskey together and have drunk, crazy sex. And um, those relationships uh, were usually toxic. And Mm. now I'm in a relationship almost five years now and I've been sober for almost eight. And I would have never in a million years thought I could deserve someone like like who I'm with now that I'm sober. And, you know, he's in recovery, too. Mm -hmm. And that's that is a big part of our relationship. Um, Like we figured out why we self-medicated. We we did the really deep, ugly, arduous work to get healthy, to get our brains right. It's something we're committed to every day so we can stay away from alcohol. And the fact that we're both on that journey individually really strengthens our bond. That's as beautiful. It's nice to hear that when you stopped sort of quieting your inner voice with external substances, you were able to, I don't know, you're able to be guided to a person who would be really great for you, it sounds like. Um, Something that was interesting to me in your book was that you said uh, oftentimes alcohol use disorder can intersect with body image disorder. Can you just talk about that a little bit? Yeah, definitely. I think that's in chapter one where it's really it's called dating yourself. And it's all about the importance of spending time alone in early sobriety or sober curiosity. And I don't just mean like sitting alone and like taking baths. (laughs) I mean, you know, really getting to know yourself getting to know who you are without alcohol, enjoying being alone, reconnecting with your body, reconnecting with your mind, connecting the body and mind together, basically getting all of that ready. So when you do meet someone or or someone's, then you're able to fully show up and be present in that relationship. And a big part of that for me was dealing with my body dysmorphia for anyone listening who doesn't know what that is, it's for me, it's like literally looking in a mirror and seeing a different, seeing a distorted version of myself. 
And as you know, in my book, I interviewed a lot of people who also struggled with body image issues and used alcohol Mm -hmm. to make themselves feel more confident while naked in bed. Men, women, trans people, everyone struggled with that. And it was also, you know, a little disheartening to hear just so many people speak negatively about their bodies. And I really thought it was mostly women, but I talked to many men and several trans people and it's, Body image issues is something we we all struggle with. For a person who is curious about trying out a life with less alcohol, it sounds like a lot of what they can expect at the beginning is just extreme discomfort. What else might someone expect? And how do you how do you tell them to deal with it? Or how did you deal with it? That's it's such a good point because it's like it is this extreme discomfort is correct. For me, it was like I as corny as it sounds, it's like I really met myself. For the first time since I was, I felt like myself again since I was like 14. Um, When we're binge drinking during these developmental stages, you know, teens, college, early 20s, that's when a lot of binge drinking happens. And that is when our brain is still forming. So once you look at the neurological impact of what excess alcohol use is doing to you, it's kind of hard to unlearn it. For this person, this this hypothetical person we're talking about who is, you know, sober curious, they're looking for a relationship, they're out there dating. What do they do instead of order a drink when they go to meet someone? How can they or, or what would you tell them so that they can cope with these feelings that come up in the moment? Yeah, I, I have a whole chapter on alcohol free date ideas and conversation starters. I always recommend something with movement something where you are looking at something external. And by that, I mean, like you're going to a museum, going to a botanical garden, going to the zoo, something like that. And the movement is helpful because you're getting rid of those jitters. Your body's moving. So you're not just like sitting there staring at each other, drinking coffee. (laughs) You're actually moving. And the point of looking at something external can actually take a great deal of pressure off of the date Because you're looking at a beautiful piece of art or these gorgeous trees and you're talking about what you're seeing as opposed to just staring at each other, talking about, oh, what do you do for a living? What are your hobbies? Uh, You know, and it just it can feel a little rote. Yeah. You know, like these dates can feel a little like interviews. It can really take the pressure off. Yeah, the book has tons of a whole chapter full of these sober date ideas. Um, You also have some language to communicate your boundaries when you're dating, especially if you're meeting with someone who does drink. Would you mind sharing one or two of those sentences with the listeners? If you feel comfortable, you can let them know why you're not drinking. In chapter one, you know, I talk about the importance of dating yourself. Once you figure out your relationship with alcohol, it's way easier to have those conversations that you're asking about, because you know, you know why you're doing this. You know why you are drinking less or not drinking at all. Then those conversations are going to be a little bit more, they'll flow a little bit more. And again, this is showing how really knowing yourself and getting comfortable with yourself leads to better external decisions in your life. A hundred percent. I love the way you worded that. And it's that's with body image. That's with dates. That's with work. I mean, it's it's really it. It can really show up in all avenues of your life. 
So then we've talked a lot about sober dating. Um, We've spoken a little bit about dating yourself. Let's talk about sober sex because that is a thing that I think, you know, we see in movies and TV sometimes. But man, when I think about the instances of hookups on TV and... um, and movies, they often are accompanied with a glass of wine or after night at the bar. What does all this alcohol use actually do to our bodies? You know, it's again, we're talking about binge drinking here. If you have one drink, that's that's a very different thing. We're talking about so like alcohol has a what's called a biphasic quality. It has two phases. The first phase is what I just described. You have a drink. It relaxes your shoulders a little bit. And that's it. You maybe don't even finish the glass of wine. The second phase is it tends to be more binge drinking territory when you are drinking specifically to get intoxicated, drinking to blackout, drinking several drinks in one sitting to change the way you feel. You know, if you're drinking alcohol to make yourself less anxious, to feel more confident, whatever it is, You have to remember, like, this isn't happening in a vacuum. It is alcohol is a drug and it is going to impact with your senses. It's going to impact you neurologically. If it's numbing your anxiety, imagine what it is doing to your body. It is numbing your senses. It is uh, hindering genital response. So that means it can cause vaginal dryness. It can lead to erectile dysfunction. So all this talk about drunk sex is better. And it's like, well... Why? Why is it better for you? And I hear I feel more confident. I feel more comfortable in my body. I have less inhibitions. I'm more willing to try different positions and no judgment here. Do whatever feels right for you. All I'm saying is identify what drunk sex gives you and then let's maybe find ways that you can get there without alcohol. How can you feel confident in bed with your body without alcohol? Why do you need alcohol to try these sex positions? Do you even want to do these sex positions or is it performative? Like that's really what I'm talking about here is really figuring out who you are in bed without alcohol. And that is the discomfort that you mentioned earlier. It can be very disconcerting when you are faced with your true sexuality for the first time. Yeah, it sounds like I think that when people just default to wanting to have drunk sex, it's because they're prioritizing quelling of fear rather than actually connecting. Oh, 100%. And it's like, you know, there's a whole chapter on PTSD because this comes up a lot, including, including myself, you know, coming to terms with the fact that I was sexually assaulted when I was drunk, you know, thinking that I had consensual sex with certain people and realizing that I wasn't consenting. That is really difficult to deal with in early sobriety. That's just difficult to deal with in general. So, you know, when people say drunk sex is better, I used to say that too, because I wasn't feeling triggered when I was drunk. I would have never had that bodily awareness before. And I would have never had that confidence to say I need to stop or I need to pause. Yeah. Right. So we're not even really in touch with our needs or what our body is going through at all when we're when we're boozed up enough to quote try something adventurous. It's it's really kind of horrifying and that it's sold in media in general as something so normal is really concerning. It is and it's you know again I don't want to bash alcohol like I do want to just be very honest about what it is though. Like it is a drug. 
it is an addictive drug and it is still the only drug in the world that you have to justify why you don't use it. That's the world that we live in. We have come a very long way with the sober curious movement, with the the non-alcoholic drink movement, with tons of books about sobriety. And, you know, that's great. We have so many resources now, but we still live in this incredibly boozy world. How would a person know if maybe it was time for them to explore a more sober lifestyle? What would you say to someone who's like, I don't know, maybe I should, or maybe somebody who hasn't even thought of it yet? What might be some signs that it would be a good idea? For me, it was repeatedly Googling, do I have a drinking problem? (laughs) So uh, spoiler alert, if you've ever Googled, do I have a drinking problem? Maybe try a dry month. Maybe take a week off. Maybe try mindful drinking. What's mindful drinking? Sorry. Yeah, no, good question. So mindful drinking, it's a movement where is really just you're being you're being mindful of when and how and where you drink. Mm-hmm. What time of day are you reaching for a drink? Um, what social situations are you reaching for a drink? How are you feeling when you're grabbing a drink? So it's really, it's almost like maybe you've heard of like a body scan meditation where you're scanning from head to toe. Like, how does your body feel? Mm-hmm. It's a similar way of like, instead of just mindlessly saying like, let's go for happy hour. It's like, well, okay, how do I feel today? Will alcohol make me feel better? Will it make me feel worse? Mm. You know, the concept, applying the concept of mindfulness, mindful eating, you know, mindful journaling, just applying that to your relationship with alcohol Mm -hmm. instead of, you know, the opposite of mindlessly chugging happy hour mojitos. Yeah. What do you what do you hope that people after listening to this episode or after picking up dry humping, what would you hope that they understood that they didn't understand before? I would love for people to to understand that you don't need to have one of those cinematic rock bottom experiences to change your relationship with alcohol. Mm-hmm. You don't have to lose everything. You don't have to lose your job and get kicked out of the house and live under a bridge before you change your relationship with alcohol like it's portrayed in the media and in film and television. Um, all you need is just the desire to drink less or maybe curiosity about your relationship with alcohol. I would say just forget everything that you've learned about alcohol and just really get present with how alcohol shows up in your life. Also, don't compare your relationship with alcohol to someone else's relationship with alcohol. Because it's so unique, because your reasons for drinking might be so unique. Exactly. And, you know, I spent years justifying my drinking like oh well I don't drink like him I don't drink like she drinks look look at how she acts when she drinks and counting how many drinks she had and I've had less and you know like the mental gymnastics of the comparing when you're comparing your relationship with alcohol to someone else's relationship to alcohol you're really missing you're not really seeing your own because someone might be able to have four drinks and be completely fine. Maybe you, after one drink, you make really bad decisions. Yeah. You know? And so it's like, it's really getting present with what is alcohol doing in your life? And then to keep it more specific to the book, what is alcohol doing to your love life, your sex life and your dating life? Those are really good questions to ask yourself. Tani, if you could rewrite 
a scene in Sex and the City or in a popular movie to show someone who was benefiting from making more more sober decisions about their romantic life. What do you think media without so much alcohol would look like? What would we show or what would we not show? What kinds of more nuanced stories do you think would be out there? I will definitely think on that, on how I would rewrite a story. But I will say I really appreciate the story arc of Raj on Big Bang Theory. Uh Uh-huh. If you've watched Big Bang Theory, he is a guy who has social anxiety and he cannot talk to women unless he's had a sip of alcohol. And his character comes full circle because we learn that he has social anxiety. He has a placebo moment where he's hitting on a girl and he realizes he's drinking non-alcoholic beer and he didn't need alcohol the whole time. Uh. So I think that was handled really well. Mm -hmm. And they let the joke be the punchline for long enough. And then they were like, okay, we need to figure out (laughs) why does Raj drink the way he does? Like, see, and that's, that's my example. He only had like a couple sips of alcohol, but that was still problematic for him because he couldn't talk to women. Mm. So if he compared his relationship with alcohol to someone else's, he would have totally missed, Oh, I have social anxiety. I I should get on medication Mm. and deal with this. Mm -hmm. That's a great example. All right. One last question that I always love to ask people that I get to talk to for Simplify, because this is a, a nominally a book podcast. Have you read anything lately that you really love and you would recommend? It doesn't have to be in this topic area. It can be anything. Yes. Um, I am a total book nerd. So I love this question. I recently finished Monsters by Claire Dieterer. Mm-hmm. It's called Monsters, A Fan's Dilemma. She talks about different problematic artists and talks about the fans dilemma of separating the art from the artist. And what I loved about the book is that it's so well researched and we don't really know where Claire lands, (laughs) you know, like she presents excellent information and the reader can decide how they feel in a, such a polarizing world that we live in now. It's really hard to come across really well done, unbiased journalism. And I think Monsters is a masterclass on presenting the facts and letting people decide for themselves. That sounds so great. I took a look for that for myself. Thank you. Is there anything that you that you wish we'd covered that we didn't talk about that you would really like people to know or to think about? I, I just I want to make sure that we covered all the things you really want people to know. Yeah, I I would remind people if you are struggling with alcohol abuse, substance use disorder, depression, anxiety, all of these are usually co-occurring disorders. The excessive drinking is very rarely the problem. It's usually the symptom. Yeah. So I would just encourage listeners, if you are struggling, you are not alone. There's so many resources out there. Go to my website, Google mental health resources. I have a podcast about all of this. Like, you're not alone. There are people who want you here. And I would just encourage everyone to give themselves some grace and work on your shit and take it one day at a time and just really be kind to yourself. Beautiful. It's a really nice way to end. Tony Lara, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. This was great.
Welcome to the bookend, where we end with books. And medieval castles. You've been, you've been I gotta with... know, what is this about? Please. Okay, so here's what I did. I was on a tour of a medieval castle uh, near the Rhine mm-hmm. River. In Germany. And I learned about why they needed so much storage for alcohol. Uh-huh. Do you know why? No. There was so much alcohol? Well, I mean... I feel like medieval times were pretty bleak in general. <laughs> no, but it's because the water wasn't safe. Ah, there was no like there was no what's it called sewage. Mm. So you couldn't always trust the well water. You couldn't always trust water. So what they did is they mixed alcohol in with the water, and they often drank instead of water, just sort of low alcohol drinks. Wow! And I had this realization of like all the jousting and all the like knights and all the medieval <laughs> stuff. Like everyone was just wasted. Oh my goodness! All of human history, like for hundreds of years of European human history. People were just low-grade buzzed, day day drinking all day. Wow. And I won't go into like the history of mixing the wine in Roman history, which is is also interesting. Part of history, yes. (laughs) But the the tie-in here is this thing that's been a part of life forever that we don't ever question. It's true. Um, And that that, like we talk about simplify, we talk about looking at the things Mm -hmm. in a different way that Mm -hmm. affect our lives. Mm -hmm. And I'm not only talking about dating here, I'm talking about alcohol in general. Yeah. Alcohol is a big part of a lot of people's lives. Yeah. And just like, I don't know, toxic relationships at work or something, it might be something that you have lived with for a long time Mm -hmm. that we want to Say, hey, yeah. maybe you could look at it. Exactly. Yeah. That was a great tie-in, by the way, of the uh, medieval knights and jousting. <laughs> because, like, who knows how those jousts would have gone if those guys weren't wasted. <laughs> kind of. Just, like, who knows how so many romantic encounters would have gone if we weren't under the influence of, you know, a drink or two. I mean, bringing it back to Tawny and what she was talking about. I asked her what she noticed when she stopped drinking. And I think she said honesty was what she noticed yeah. when she stopped drinking because it, it really forced her to sit with herself and say, okay, who am I without this? Just like if you were to quit your job mm-hmm. and be on unemployment for a couple of months, you have to decide, all right, who am I without this? And maybe, who knows, if you're a very casual drinker, somebody who drinks when they're at a party every three months, this wouldn't be a thing. But if, you know, you're out regularly seeing friends, having a drink, a lot of social life is organized around having a drink and, I mean, dating, as we talked about in this episode, and just relating in general. We use it for so many reasons, and so much of it is about getting ourselves comfortable enough to get close to one another. Yeah. So, yeah, it's really interesting to think about who are we if we remove the things that alter our minds and our moods slightly. Yeah, and I have a book recommendation about that, actually. Do you? But before that, I wanted to say sober dating is is an interesting kind of use case of just being aware of, I, didn't Tony call it mindful drinking yeah. also? Yeah, I thought that was really interesting, mindful drinking. So you're not like necessarily saying no forever. You're saying, I'm going to stop this and see what I notice. Like doing, it made me think about, do you remember our episode on the Whole30? Yeah. Where um, I think her name is Melissa said, just, you know, take out these things right. and see how your body feels. This is kind of the yeah. same principle. Yeah. And notice how your body reacts, how your mind reacts and like what's good and bad about it. What do you want to keep? And we talk about this a lot when it comes to like productivity, mm. social media use, yeah. where our energy is going, what to focus on. And mm-hmm. it, I think we have to also then talk about alcohol, these kinds of things that we do that we put into our body all the time. Yeah. And I, I mean, for me, you say honesty. For me, it's like this being present idea. Mm. And connection. And if you're dating and you're looking for connection with people and you're looking to be able to communicate authentically and for other people to do that, 
it requires some kind of connection to yourself that alcohol can maybe provide in flashes, but not mm. in any kind of deeper way. And so many people are looking for more connection. Mm. It just seems simple yeah. and obvious in that that perspective than to not do it with the hangovers. Yeah. Connection and honesty can seem easier with alcohol. I've definitely thought that before, that it seems easier. But it's a kind of disembodied connection that allows you to push through what your real feelings actually are. And right. if those feelings are anxiety, then that's a data point you're missing. Yeah. If those feelings are... I'm unsafe. That's a data point that you're missing. And if you're drinking alcohol so as not to say things, so you don't actually confess feelings or you don't bring up something that's bothering you, that's 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 data too. And um, so. Okay, so books. Let's do it. Let's you do got some book? books. Yeah. The first one is uh, Michael Pollan. You know Michael Pollan? Yep. It's called This Is Your Mind on Plants. Okay. So he wrote How to Change Your Mind, which was like a big book about psychedelics. Mm-hmm. And then he followed it up with this little book, This Is Your Mind on Plants. And it's four essays. Mm-hmm. And one of them is about caffeine. Okay. And the reason why I'm bringing this is like I was talking about the medieval consumption of alcohol. 90% of Americans drink caffeine regularly. Mm. And that means that basically most of our interactions are with people on this drug, mm-hmm. on substances. So... Most of us live most of our lives in a caffeinated state, mm. which to me is like a bit trippy <laughs> somehow. Like, ooh, am I actually dealing with yeah. dealing with somebody or am I dealing with the caffeine in their body? Uh-huh. And basically there's a lot of like conflicted research about whether it's good for you or not, and da da da. And but there's one thing that seems for sure, which is that it messes with your sleep. Mm. And that's also something to me about the sober dating and about alcohol in general. As I've gotten older, alcohol has the main thing it does is make me not sleep well. And I find that really taxing. Yeah. It turns into just a hugely costly thing to drink a lot and not sleep. Yeah. It's not like a one night endeavor. Right. It's It's a multi-day recovery. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So that's one of the books I wanted to bring up. Yeah. The second book I brought is called The Alcohol Experiment by Annie Grace. Mm -hmm. She writes a lot about sobriety. The Alcohol Experiment is going 30 days without alcohol. Mm -hmm. And this, um, I was reading through the blinks and there was something that stuck out to me, which is that, actually, I kind of want to just read it. Go for it. Yeah, let's hear it. it's kind of a long bookend. Okay, here's what it says. Does drinking really relax you and help you handle stress? If you think about it, you may realize that alcohol just mutes your stress. The only way to actually make stress go away and achieve true relaxation is to address sources of tension. This Mm. is kind of what we were talking about with like, if you feel jittery and need a drink to not be jittery, why are you jittery? Right. Um, But yeah, probably talking to your boss, dealing with your relationship, whatever, instead of the tequila would be better because you wake up feeling worse, right? And also getting drunk and making mistakes and feeling guilty and that shame over thing you talked about. However, it's also physiologically true. Alcohol is a depressant which means our bodies counterbalance it by releasing stress hormones like adrenaline and cortisol. Mm. And it takes a week for those hormones to leave the body. Mm. So if you drink regularly, you pretty much always have increased levels of adrenaline and cortisol. Damn. Which means that when you have that, like Tony was talking about also, not exactly that like one beer thing, but if you have like a few drinks, then you're basically always having elevated stress hormones in your body also. Mm -hmm. And that's just part of this mindful thing. Is it possible that alcohol is actually creating more stress wow. than it's solving. And that's interesting. only way to really find that out would be to then go on like a 30 day or a couple weeks or something. Yeah. Um, dry time. That was a really good rec for this episode. Thanks. Yeah. What All about right. You? I've just got one. Predictably, it's a Gabor Mate book. 
It's called In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts. So it came out in 2008, but it's a really human exploration of addiction. Uh, It's full of real-life stories of addicts, but it's also packed with science-based analyses of why and how people get addicted. And it's really humanizing and real. And interestingly enough, it also challenges the reader to consider ways in which they are addicts to something, to whatever. We're all addicted to something. I have been addicted to athletics at various times (laughs) in my life for various reasons and, you know, snacks. But we're all (laughs) addicted to something. Um, Other people, like when you fall in love, it's kind of like an addiction. So he encourages us to look at addiction through a really relatable human lens and to look at addicts as people, even as he weaves in science, which is kind of the the Gabor Mate special. And special note, we have actually Daniel Mata, who is his son um, and the co-author on his newest book, which is like a smash hit, The Myth of Normal. He will be in, I think, one of the next two episodes. So stay tuned for that. Nice. Cool. Should we wrap it up? That was a cool episode. We should. Yeah. Thanks. All right. Simplify is produced by me, Caitlin Schiller, Ben Schumann-Stoller, Phoebe McIndoo, Maria Levichik, Ben Jackson, and other invisible and wonderful audio editors who help us sound our best. It was produced here at Blinkist in Berlin, Germany. And if you'd like to try Blinkist and hear the blinks to these books that we just mentioned, please go check it out. Blinkist.com slash simplify. Tap on try Blinkist and use the code boozefree. All one word, boozefree. There you go. 14 days free. Check out the blinks. Maybe consider doing your own 30-day mindful drinking experiment. All right, then, till next time, checking out. Checking out. See ya.